Hello and welcome to Understanding Black Britain. This easy listening podcast series is designed to help you understand the history of racism, what racism looks like today, the lived experience, how racism affects us, what makes us an activist, who are our allies and why did they take up the arms in the anti-racism struggle. My name is Oliver Evans and I am a community and race relations activist. Episode 4 how racism affects us. In this episode, we're going to look at the varying ways that exposure to racism affects the human person. Ahmed Saul wrote for The Guardian, a one-size-fits-all approach to discrimination fails to grasp its impact on different minorities. There is a tendency to classify all victims of racism under the label of people of colour or black and Asian minority ethnic. However, this generalist approach fails to account for the varied ways that racism affects different races. There is anti-black racism, anti-Asian racism and anti-Arab racism, even sometimes anti-white racism. To be clear, we need to work to eradicate them all. Yet historically, it's black people who have most often found themselves at the bottom of the pile. Anti-black racism should be classified separately. Black people and other minorities do not have the amenity of a superficial or trite interest in racism. Like trying to outrun your shadow on a sunny day, it follows you everywhere, you can't escape it, it's the daily lived reality. Approaching the topic of racism may not be easy, it can generate empathy, concern and compassion just as much as it can provoke defensiveness, anger and hostility. This is because we each approach racism differently according to our lived experiences, self-awareness and critical consciousness, irrespective of race. But it is widely agreed that the racism that truly affects us today is due for the most part to the theory of whiteness, in addition to our personal biases. Fun fact, whiteness isn't about white people. It's about the processes and ideals we find in institutions corporate systems and parts of society. Here, Mike explains how and when he discovered whiteness and its contribution to the realities of racism. So I think I first became aware of whiteness as a, as a, a, a thing in my life um, when Calvin Pete, who was a, a black professional golfer from the United States, qualified to play a tournament in our local golf club. And the members actually had to vote on whether or not they were going to allow a black player to play on their course, because up until then, black players had, uh, or black people had not been allowed to play their golf course. So uh, I didn't know it was whiteness then, but this, um, this, this racism, I suppose, you know, puzzled me and confused me as I was reading about it and hearing about it in, in the community where I lived. And again, that, that, you know, I wasn't calling it whiteness, but I was aware of these, uh, well, I was aware of the racism, I was aware of the National Front, I was aware of uh, uh, what felt almost like kind of a Star Wars kind of uh, battle going on in our local communities. I now see whiteness really as uh, a power system. It's not just for white people. Um, anyone can, can play a part in this power system. And in fact, one of the things the power system likes to do is to find... Um, uh, people of colour, black people, brown people, to help run the system because then we could pretend it's inclusive. 
Uh, and whiteness as a power system is about power over, essentially. It's about domination. It's about submission. Um, it's about control. It's about extraction. It's about accumulation. And it's about ends justifying means. Um, it's about, you know, we can get away with almost anything or we can justify almost anything if the result is productivity, wealth. Uh, and I think this ethics, this utilitarian ethics, this extractive ethics uh, um, is, is almost invisible but powerful in shaping our society. And I contrast it with an ethic that might talk about care, nurturing and distribution. And I notice whiteness now nearly everywhere I look. I mean, I, I see those racialized as minorities being asked by white systems uh, to tackle the very inequalities that their victims offer, as if the white systems themselves have got very little to do with it. Experiencing discrimination is an emotional trauma, one that can hurt deeply and does not discriminate. In its eyes, everyone is fair game. It's a universal experience occurring in every community, in every economic strata, and within every demographic group. Racism has long been a part of human history. While we readily recognise and widely condemn overt acts of racially motivated hate today, Racism continues to permeate our society, with a greater degree of subtlety enveloped in modern day nuances, where that persistence of disproportionate impacts is a product of the historical and ongoing experience of differential treatment, all because of race. And like any other types of discrimination, racism can lead to a profound feeling of pain, harm and humiliation, often leading to despair and exclusion through self-fulfilling prophecies brought about by the continued diminishing and belittling of one's very existence. How does racism make me feel? I think this question really, you know, the, the way that I would always answer it or explain it is actually from a self-fulfilling prophecy, because I remember when I came into this country from Zimbabwe, I was confronted with a lot of microaggressions especially from a tender age and coming from a place where I was someone who was really confident and someone who knew I was intelligent and I actually believed it as well. The experiences that I was confronted with when, when I came into the country were just ones where I began to sort of fulfill what was said about me when I wasn't selected for, you know, like big roles in a debate because um, someone said to me, my my accent wouldn't particularly fit in or we we have to make sure that when we're doing this debate or when we're doing this there was that perfect fit which um, according to some people I didn't have so you sort of come to a place where initially you argue with it and you think you know what I know I'm good enough I know you know I, I can articulate myself um, I know I can do this but when it's done continuously and when you experience that constantly is that self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, you start to believe that. And what happened in my case is that I started to lose confidence. And I actually started to put into my head, you know, the things that people were saying that maybe they could be right. Maybe I'm not good enough, which didn't make sense because coming from a place where you knew you were performing quite well in, you know, academically, but now you're in a place where you're thinking, maybe I'm not as good as, as I thought I would be. And actually believing that, you know, losing that confidence, it doesn't just stay with you in that environment. You you kind of like start to hold back from going for opportunities and it diminishes, you know, the, the passion or the, the the determination that was previously in you. For me, that, that has been, you know, one of the main um, impacts of racism, I would say, 
it's just that you lose your confidence because you're told because you don't fit in, you're different, you're not good enough. So it's it's just that you know losing your confidence and 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 I think what what's really demoralizing about the whole thing is that you don't just lose your confidence at that particular thing or at that particular moment. And actually regaining that confidence, I find even up to this day and age, it's something that I'm I'm having to to do for myself. I'm having to unlearn all those negative things that were said to me because, you know, because I look different. Black men are 17 times more likely to be diagnosed with a severe mental health condition compared to white men. This is in part due to the lack of awareness and understanding of context around cultural and race issues. So it's no surprise that because of this need to deeply understand racial cultural context, studies have highlighted the benefit in people of ethnic backgrounds seeking mental health treatment from a therapist or counsellor of the same race and culture. But this in itself is difficult because there's both a lack of diversity in the profession and an inaccessibility of mental health resources for ethnic communities. I mean, I suppose, you know, when we said more black people end up in mental health, it, you know, there is something also about racism because there is a way that we are perceived. So again, a, a black mental health patient is more likely to have more intensive treatment and more likely to be sectioned, et cetera. So there is an element that we are treated differently, even in those arenas. Um, we're more likely to be told to to be marked as being aggressive or dangerous or difficult um, as well. And so, you know, there's all of that element as well. It's vital that black people look after their mental health as they're at risk of burnout, fatigue, anxiety and depression, not just because of institutional, systemic and personal exposure to racism, but also because of ongoing global events. It's easy to think that a black man being shot and killed in Delaware, or the beating and illegal detention of a black woman in Cape Town by racist cops has no influence on black people in the UK. But the truth is, they do. These instances allow traumas to resurface, experiences to be relived, and sorrow to be felt for in the injustices against another human being. The connection goes beyond skin color, it's about family, cultures, countries, and history repeating itself. It's the very real possibility that tomorrow could see you being the headline, and if not you, then someone close to you. But the effects of racism aren't just highlighted worsenings in mental health. There are several things that racism affects before we get to a place of clinical deterioration and that proverbial padded cell. Look back over the seven pillars to the construct of racism. Dominance, management, containment, intellectuality, humanity, reality, and erasure. Introspection of these lets us see how systemic and institutional elements constantly reoccur in the race discussions. Having your existence demeaned or suppressed constantly creates a lack of confidence in one's abilities and self-belief. That destruction of confidence extends far further than is realized and it contributes to exceptional people feeling as though they are unable to continue pushing themselves to get ahead in life. The socio-economic positioning of black people in the UK, particularly in the areas of education, environment and economy, add to issues of building or sustaining an affirmative self-belief. Traditionally, black communities fare less well comparative to white communities in these areas. One example being, in 2019, 
black Caribbean pupils were permanently excluded at nearly three times the rate of white British pupils and black people were most likely to be unemployed and homeless compared to any other racial minority group. Whiteness and systemic exclusions make it 20 times harder overall for black people to achieve the same prospects of improving socio-economic shortcomings. Obviously people being put in the poor areas etc can't and that impacts on people's marriages break down. You know, you've got parents that are both having to do um, shifts and all kinds of stuff. How do they raise their children together? P latchkey children because the, everyone's at work. and they've, So all of that, it then is a vicious cycle and impact. So I think you're right. So, you know, socioeconomic um, factors, it's how we're treated. It's the same thing we talked about, the health inequalities. The health inequalities are not genetic. It's proven with COVID, it's proven everything else. There are lots of factors that are at play. As I said before, a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. And so the next question becomes, to BAME or not to BAME? Created by politicians as a lazy alternative to political blackness, terms like BAME, Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, or POC, People of Colour, should not be used in reference to a specific race unnecessarily and should be considered quite divisive. When needing to refer to a person's race, Referring to a black woman as a woman of colour, for instance, undermines that woman's specific lived experiences of being a black woman. There's a growing movement for the terms BAME and POC to be removed from the language surrounding diversity. And while it's nice to wait for a national guide, groups and organisations need to clearly understand that the people affected by the use of these terms are the guidance. Many find the terms offensive, given the way that they're used. And these terms and the incorrect application of them means our heritage, experiences, opinions and cultures are easily managed to fit the narrative and rhetoric of whiteness and privilege. It takes a proverbial baseball bat to black people's intellectuality, humanity and reality, forcing black people to feel like they need to erase their identity at the doorstep of the office. We are not your BAME staff or people. We are people and staff within your organisation or governed society. The difference in how you use this language is a desire to be inclusive or to simply maintain a status quo. There are certain hoops and certain things that you don't have to jump. Or like when, you, when we walk into meetings and we're talking, there, there, there's always that sense of, are people judging me because I'm a black person? Or are people genuinely buying the things that I say? I think part of it for me is, is about my heritage. So being an African black woman and my, like, what how I show up in work. So, you know, my culture and my, my it's not that I'm not assertive. We have the expertise, the knowledge and the know-how. Um, and and at times I think there's a, there is a perception or it feels like um, those qualities are not valued or are overlooked and you know you leave you leave the room thinking I'm being paid quite a good decent amount of money but you're not taking my expertise and so clearly I'm not being included in this conversation or I'm here to tick the box oftentimes people expect me to to leave my racial identity at the door talk to us about the legislation don't talk to us about your experiences as a black woman I found that a massive conflict of when I said, as a black woman, my opinion is, and then the, and, and I've been categorically told, actually, and I think to myself, well, that's, I cannot separate the two things. There's no on and off button to being black.
or to having the context that I see the world and my perception of the world. Uh, so I think for me, one of the top things I think I really wanted to highlight is that there's a lot, there's, there is almost an, an unspoken rule that when black people show up at work, we forget we're black. The one size fits all approach to tackling racism leaves the racial group which suffers the most brutality, hatred and discrimination drastically unsupported and isolated. The racism experience should make a note of what it targets, i.e. a person's blackness. In terms of like the, the referral to the GMC, that a black medic does something, and when I say black, I mean black, Asian, whatever, everybody who's of colour, does something, you know, it, straight away, it's referred to the GMC. White doctor does something, lots, all we start hearing is, is, is human factors, root cause analysis. We start to fudge it around, do you understand what I'm saying? So, so there is definitely a bias in the system. You know, res data showing that if you're um, BME, you're more likely to be disciplined. So again, you know, is it around that 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 empathy and that tolerance and that acceptance of behaviour from one group but not from another, or even that not having that rapport to have the conversation informally first? So going down the formal route because then I'm doing my job, then no one can say anything because I'm doing my job. But if it's somebody else who I feel more comfortable with, I'll actually take them to one side over a cup of coffee and have the conversation. So it does impact and it, it is those subtleties because when it's happening, it's felt and it's felt by the people that are experiencing it. But the people doing it, so to speak, don't realise that they are or don't, even if they do, it's subconscious or it's, in a, you know, so and actually you also can't prove it. You can't say that is because I was black or that's because I was Asian or that's because I was Muslim or whatever it is. You cannot say that because you've got no evidence. And then you can't escalate it either because the people you're escalating it to also don't understand. So it's it's um it's really, really difficult. And I and the other thing as well, because of the disciplinaries, is we don't we we don't stand up for ourselves. So when they say, or oh, you go and work in the COVID wards, you do it. You do it because you don't want to get yourself in trouble because, again, you don't feel that you can do that in that way. So we're more we're very we're more um, we have um, what's it, more respect for authority in that way. We don't just kind of walk up to the CEO's office and, you know, it's those kind of things that, you know, it, some of it's cultural, some of it's behavioral, some of it is around inferiority complex. Some of it is knowing that even if we did, nothing would happen. It's all of that that you kind of. Um, yeah, it kind of all comes together, doesn't it? And you just think it's a far more complex issue. But it's something that we've internalised. And because we've internalised and we see it and we feel it, it influences our actions. And then someone will say, well, no one said, you know, no one discriminated against you. You put yourself in that position. You isolated yourself. And you can't really say why that was, because technically, what did they say or what did they do? They didn't do anything. You know, they didn't say anything. And then it becomes your problem. In white dominant societies, blackness has become a synonym for crime, laziness, poverty and even low intelligence. This behaviour and conscious bias have come to be known as anti-blackness, the specific and targeted racial attitude against blackness as a whole rather than towards an individual black person, based upon unevidenced generalisations over personal experiences. This type of racism is found in herd mentalities and is often pushed by an individual with standing and a platform to speak to the masses. Think about Enoch Powell, or more recently Donald Trump, and how they've delivered an irrational hyperbole 
but yet have managed to make millions upon millions believe they speak the truth. What I hope you've managed to glean is that the effects of racism aren't universal across racial groups, nor strictly limited to mental health. It affects physical health and well-being, people's confidence, their very identity, their self-belief, social positioning, finances and so much more. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more than just mental and physical well-being. I suppose, I think what's really come about um, this year is is people are now appreciating more the subtle forms of racism and the covert forms of racism because I think you know where someone calls someone else the n-word or the p-word or anything like that it's really clear and it's really obvious and everyone's like that's wrong and we shouldn't do that but it's the other bits obviously the, the microaggressions and that kind of gradual wearing down of people's confidence which does impact on mental health and does impact on physical health and does impact on stress which then impacts on other things but it's about people's livelihood people's financial well-being so for example opportunities confidence to go for opportunities being given those opportunities even if one goes for them so that constant being shut down per se when people go forward for things that maybe lack of support so we know about obviously the support systems that might be in place or people have those networks that they can get to help them when it comes to applying for things or preparing for interviews and a lot of our um, BME um, colleagues do not have that so Again, you know, they might have all the qualifications. In fact, it turns out we are tend to be more qualified. We tend to have more letters after our name. We tend to have done more exams. But actually, when it comes down to it, being able to demonstrate that becomes very difficult. I think it's also something around empathy and that lack of empathy, that lack of tolerance and empathy for people, which is, again, really subtle and sometimes not even, you can't put your finger on it. But knowing that, for example, you know, I might do something, I might make a mistake or I might and, and probably not in my role anymore per se, but maybe as I was junior and coming up. But actually the response to me would be more harsh and wondering and feeling that actually if I wasn't black, perhaps that there would be a bit more sensitivity in how I was approached. And, you know, that plays out in how we treat patients as well in terms of, you know, there's lots of evidence around pain management that actually there is a perception that certain ethnic groups have thicker skins or tolerate pain differently and therefore that the, the, the empathy is not there in that same way or if someone English isn't their first language or they have a strong accent sometimes they can be brushed off. Next time you choose to deliver a message think of the language you use. Ask yourself if it was me would I appreciate how I'm being described? Remember that the person in front of you is more than skin colour. They have a heritage and a culture that brings experience and a wealth of knowledge. Allow them to bring their whole selves. Don't ask them to leave part of themselves at the door. Give people the safe space that they need to feel included. Talk, but more importantly, listen openly and authentically regarding problems and understand that it's the culture not the individuals that need to change. Think how leadership may be more disconnected than they realise and how this disconnection can negatively affect a person. There's a complete disconnect with what actually um, people of colour and what the leaders are seeing and what the leaders are hearing. So there is something about um, them acknowledging and I love that authentic, it's almost like the onus on the safe spaces to have an authentic conversation. 
that's the impact of being non-white that's the impact that you, you just don't have those same freedoms um that you would have otherwise and it's you've always got to be aware of of yourself so that does have a massive impact because people give up people become disheartened and then they don't they don't go forward for things they they don't they kind of just co- come in do their job keep their head down and, and go home and they don't put themselves out there or you know express all their skills etc and it, it's it's quite sad continued exposure to the harshness of racism and anti-blackness is like dominoes falling once the last one has fallen there's nothing left to keep going everything's fallen so where do we go from there activism join me in episode five to find out where in this journey we go from feeling racism is something we just have to accept to becoming activists for change in what makes us an activist consider that there's a problem you cannot shift the needle or the bme staff to say it's actually you're you're the guys with the problem right so that again going back to that victim blaming cycle yeah it's that kind of mentality so i think there's a whole culture that needs to change and that's contributed to it and for me i'm not allowing that to happen to me i'm not allowing that to happen to my colleagues my friends or family so that's one of the reasons why i'm speaking out against it What's really going on is that we're all the same, aren't we? We're all the same. Sam!